Hey there, welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is Heather O'Reilly, who has just come out of retirement to join Irish champion Shelbourne FC and compete in the Champions League. Before we get going, you can sign up for a subscription to my writing site at grantwall.com. I've got big magazine stories coming soon from my reporting trips to Leeds United and interviewing migrant workers in Qatar. So subscribe now and help me continue doing cool stuff like that. That's grantwall.com. In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the soccer news from a busy weekend. We'll have my interview with Heather O'Reilly in segment two, but let's bring in Witty. How are you, my friend? Doing all right. I just did the accounting before we started, and I believe I have watched portions of at least eight soccer matches this weekend. (laughs) So we have a lot to get to here because my oh my, was it a busy weekend. It really was. And this is the time of year, obviously. It's the opening weekend of the Premier League and the Bundesliga. And at the same time, in MLS and NWSL, you've got games starting to matter more as we get into the playoff stretch drive, MLS All-Star game coming up midweek. But let's start with Leeds United 2, Wolves 1, Leeds United with its American contingent, Jesse Marsh, Tyler Adams, and star on the day, Brendan Aronson, comes from behind after going down early and gets a big three points at Ellen Road. And I was exhausted at halftime of this game just watching it, Chris, (laughs) which I guess is a Leeds tradition going back to, to Bielsa, but Jesse Marsh's team just runs and runs and runs. And it was not a great start. You know, uh, they go down early against Wolves and you're thinking, oh, wow, this is going to be tough, especially with some of the Leeds fans uh, doubting Marsh, being skeptical of Marsh, holding on to the Bielsa uh, experience that they had, at least the positive parts of it. But Brendan Aronson, front and center uh, in the comeback, wins the ball that leads to the equalizer. A uh, very marsh ball type of moment. They love to press, win the ball deep in the opposing end and strike quickly. And then Aronson ends up not getting the credit for the game winner. It's an own goal, but he was right there. And, uh, you know, just a, a tremendous Premier League debut for him. Yeah. And it, it was funny because uh, on, on the commentary, I believe the, the co-commentator said that one is one for the dubious goals panel, which might be my new favorite thing in all of English football, an entity called the dubious goals panel. I hope this one goes before and it gets given to Aronson, not least because I have him in my fantasy team. But uh, also, I, I think that it is his just reward for what was a great debut for him. Like you said, I thought Lee Leeds had moments in the game where you can tell that they have bought into Jesse Marsh's identity. They execute it. They press high. They win the ball high. It leads to the first goal. And then you have other moments in the game where I thought maybe last half hour they played pretty well. First 15 minutes of the second half, though, they were not great. They were up against it. I really thought Wolves were going to get an equalizer at that point. But they hang on to all three points to get a win. And ultimately, it's anything to provide Jesse Marsh some stable footing at this club. And you're never really on stable footing until you've gotten to maybe the midway point of the season and you have 29 points or something like that. You've got uh, maybe a point and a half per game and you can start to build a little bit and get comfortable. But every result, every kick of the ball feels so significant around this Leeds team because they just got off of a relegation fight. And the beginning of this season is to basically avoid another one. So in some ways, the first 10 games are all about, can we just get to maybe October, November, heading into the World Cup? 
five points clear, six points clear of the relegation zone, so we don't have to be so stressed out all the time. But that's how it feels around this club. I thought Aronson put in a good performance. I thought Tyler Adams was a little bit more helter-skelter on the day. There were certainly moments where he did his thing in winning the ball and, and making life difficult to play around him. But there were also times where I thought he got the run around a little bit. In particular, it was one moment where Pedro Neto was staring down two Leeds defenders, one of which was Adams, and he put on this little bit of skill that was absolutely amazing and it led to a goal-scoring opportunity. But uh, I thought Adams was less strong, but I thought in the overall, it's certainly impressive that they were able to execute Jesse Marsh's ideas and it seemed like that team was bought into him. Yeah, I don't want to give away too much from my story coming out soon here, but both Jesse Marsh and Tyler Adams talked to me about how this Leeds team is, like you say, buying into what Jesse Marsh wants from them more than Leipzig did last year, where they never fully did that. And and you can see once you buy into it, uh, it's a bit of a, it's a very sort of pure way of approaching the Red Bull system. Uh from Marsh. It kind of always has been, but he has become even more so like that, I think, the last couple seasons. And you have to, if you buy into it, get into the idea of so much is about what's happening when you don't have the ball. And this Leeds team is doing it. And that's how they got their first goal. And they, you know, had some other moments like that. Good subs in this game too by Marsh, I think impacted things. And you're right, like the the first parts of the second half, actually, I thought Wolves uh, controlled uh, large parts of that. So for me, actually, I think it probably could have been a, a more deserved tie and a point, but like to get three points out of it, to get a really good performance from Brendan Aronson, who just keeps getting better and better and better. Uh, I'm going to have a lot of fun. I think a lot of us are going to have fun watching Leeds this season. Uh, and that's a good way to start if you're, you're Jesse Marsh and the Americans there. Uh, moving on, on Sunday, West Ham United nil, Man City 2, Erling Haaland brings the two. And this is what we were expecting when Erling Haaland signed with Man City. And just... A, a, a tremendous combination of athleticism and soccer smarts and a force. And if you're working with a player like Kevin De Bruyne, who knows how to set you up the way he did for Holland on that second goal, where he only had one touch, but it was just force of nature mixed with great soccer IQ and pretty unstoppable. And it's remarkable considering that I actually thought that they didn't get anywhere near approaching what Erling Haaland's ceiling could be in this game. Because for about 30 minutes, and Lee Dixon was good pointing this out on the NBC commentary, he kept making runs in behind. And they were smart runs. They were good runs. They could have led to goal-scoring chances. And the Man City players just didn't play them. They, I, I think they're still getting used to the notion of that option existing. And I think Pep, particularly after the first five minutes when, when I thought West Ham started pretty well, they just wanted to completely kill the game, and they did. At times, this game felt like I looked at I looked at the clock on the screen. It's like God, only thirty eight minutes have gone. I don't know if it's because I had watched eight games already that weekend, or that game was just dragging. But Matt, I, th- I thought Pep just wanted to take the the sting out of the game and and pass the ball around and do the Man City thing. But at least chances on the table for Erling Haaland to run in behind, and really, Man City didn't create a great deal beyond that. And that's okay because they get the two goals and they win the game. But I still think they're very much coming online here. Every week of training that they can get in order to fully integrate Holland, in order to 
kind of get the full Man City way playing through the team. I think at times Jack Grealish needs to further adhere to the Man City way, um, and he can certainly combine with Halan more. There's still so much more for this team left to do, but it's terrifying that Halan makes the two runs in behind, wins the penalty on the first, and has that remarkable burst of speed. I don't think you see burst of speed quite like his, even in the Premier League where there's so many great athletes. Uh, But his first three steps are absolutely amazing. And then uh, the clinical penalty take, which I I thought there was a little bit of pressure on that penalty, uh, considering uh, what he went through in the community shield. And he takes it so well. There is no saving that penalty. And then, as you said, the second just has to get his body wrapped around it. And then you all of a sudden get that feeling. And that's the feeling that's terrifying. If you were against Manchester City, oh, he's going to score this. And yeah, there's just something about having that player in the team where you know he finishes the chance. No, you're totally right. And I wish there was like a data metric they could post on all players in the Premier League on your their first three steps. Who's the fastest? And actually, I, Holland has got to be at the, the very high end of that list. And I do think they're going to score more goals with him running in behind than they are trying to send crosses into him for headers. That's not really his game. And they were trying that at times. I still felt like Man City was so in control of this game. It felt, it was a 2-0 that felt like a 4-0. Um, like West Ham really was never a threat, I thought. And I get it. They're playing a very difficult team. But it is interesting when you, and, and we'll go now to the Fulham Liverpool 2-2, it is a little worrisome, I think, if you're a Liverpool fan. I know it's just one game, but everyone's talking about these two teams are going to run away from everybody, and they might. But Fulham's a team that a lot of people thought, not us, by the way, is going to get relegated. And terrific performance from Fulham. Mitrovic, big impact on the game. Uh, just concerning if you're a Liverpool fan to be dropping points already. Agreed. And especially against a newly promoted team, as you said, a team that not a lot of people think are going to stay in the division. And I think for me, it actually underscores in some ways the opponents for these two teams, because West Ham, I thought, were sort of impotent on the day. They kept 24% of the ball and they didn't even seem terribly interested in trying. Whereas Fulham, who only had 33% of the ball, in theory, that is a very small number. Whenever they did get it, they wanted to play. Whenever they did get it, they had an idea of how they were going to pass from back to front against a suffocating forward press from Liverpool. They, at at every opportunity, when the ball was in the middle area of the pitch, they were trying to cause problems for Jordan Henderson, who I thought had a bad game, but that was forced upon him by a full of midfield that were on it. Joao Paulini and Harrison Reed had a really good performance in that midfield. I really thought that Fulham took the game, and I don't think Liverpool were really ready for this team that wasn't going to lay over. Now, at the same time, Jurgen Klopp just talked about the inability to play passes that broke lines, the inability to really cause them problems on the day. Liverpool just didn't look sharp. And by the way, I don't think Manchester City looked that sharp they just, or at least in the final third, they didn't. They're, they're passing from back to front. I actually noticed what the uh, the Peacock guys talked about at halftime, Tim Howard and Robbie Musto, that tactical switch where all of a sudden they're putting the fullbacks in midfield. I feel like this could become a theme for Manchester City. They've got a new tactical wrinkle to try and get more numbers into the attack. But th- there is just something about how Man City play from back to front, and then you just have to create a couple chances. Whereas Liverpool, I just thought, were completely lacking in sharpness. They did not look ready for the start of the season. And unfortunately, or fortunately, in this Premier League, 
you can't miss a beat, even if it's the first beat, because every inch of gap that you give to Manchester City is frankly what allowed them to win the league last year. They at one point had a 10-point lead, and while it did shrink, it was the lead that allowed them to eventually hang on to the title. So the title race does get settled now. And when you look at the fixtures at the start of the year and you're looking at a Premier League title race, the two teams have to look at home and away against the newly promoted clubs and see six points. Now, I don't know if Man City are going to get six points against Fulham, but they're going to fancy it. And and they just, and Liverpool just didn't put in enough of a performance on the day. I love it. You, you use fancy as a verb, by the way. Um <laughs> But a few things stuck out, stuck out to me from this game. Uh, one, Virgil van Dijk, I, I, maybe my expectations are just too high. I almost expect him to be perfect when he plays. And to give away that penalty, I thought, was just a surprise for me from him because that had a big impact on the, the end result. Uh, I got to admit, I giggled a little bit when Jurgen Klopp said uh, they, they don't always give hugs to the boys after the game if they don't deserve it. So... <laughs> That's why we didn't. Very see parental. That. <laughs> well, I, I laugh more at the pitch being dry. That was that was yeah, a bit absurd. No, that was funny too. And then, uh, and Tim Ream had some interesting comments after the game about um, whether Liverpool should have expected their press, and and he was like, "Well, that's on them. You should ask them." <laughs> Tim Ream, I thought, was pretty solid in this game, yeah. and I think there are questions. There's always been questions about. Can Tim Ream, American defender, hack it in the Premier League? He can play in the Championship great, but he's had troubles in the Premier League. And this is one game, obviously, but I think it was a pretty promising thing to see how he played in the game, as uh, was the case with the other American, Jedi Robinson. Um, you know, this this was an encouraging game, and and I think got some U.S. men's national team fans asking, you know, forget for a moment about John Brooks, who by the way still hasn't signed with anybody. Why isn't Tim Ream with the team anymore at national team level? He sort of got dropped, and we never we haven't really heard much from Greg Berhalter about why that decision was made. But this is a guy who potentially could help this young U.S. team and, and be a leader. I do think he has had a couple of mares uh, in, in a U.S. shirt. And I think there were times where you look at a starting lineup and go, oh, 10-11, so that is great. But Tim Ream, still in the team, huh? Uh, and I, I do think at times that's not necessarily his fault. He plays as a left center, left center back and a four in this team. I don't think we've ever seen that from Tim Ream, or at least under Burhalter. They either put, him, either put him as a left back, which they did, I believe, in Denver, in the CONCACAF Nations League, I think that's one of those games where he did not play particularly well, uh, or they put him as a left center back in a three, but they kind of put him on that island where maybe Bo Salah could be running at him, and he handled himself. I thought I agree with you. I thought he handled himself very well. So uh, for me, the notion of Tim Ream playing for the national team, for me, is still a bit of a long shot. I think he's kind of played his way out of contention with the, the with the performances he put in the national team. But as you said, that experience is invaluable. There are not a lot of veteran leaders in the U.S. men's national team because the team is so young and it feels weird to hold out a young player that maybe can get the minutes there. Maybe if it's Chris Richards, if it's somebody else, uh, because you're playing a 34-year-old. But a lot of national teams play older players because that experience is valuable. I, I should be clear. I don't think Tim Ream should be starting for the U.S. or anything. I think he should maybe be the last center back to make the team. And if you're going to take 26 players, as every team is, to the World Cup, I think you can make a pretty good case for taking him for some of the leadership reasons we talked about, which he did show inside the national team when he was there. Um, But 
you know, we'll see. Uh, and it's certainly possible that Greg Berhalter will bring him back in uh, in September, but uh, that's not too far away. That's a month from now. Um, moving on, we've got so many games to talk about here. Man United won Brighton 2 in Eric Ten Hag's debut at Old Trafford. And same old, same old. This is still a not very good United team and deservedly beaten by give Brighton some credit. It seems like they sell players quite a bit and just keep it going. Finished ninth last season and showed today that they could do it again. Yeah. For me, the thing that just most stands out is Brighton do not have better players than Manchester United. I think that's a fairly (laughs) obvious observation. However, they have completely bought in to a system, to a way of playing under Graham Potter who has them playing from back to front and has them playing with the sort of quality that I think Manchester United would dream of. And if you think of all the different coaches that they've had, you can't say that they haven't brought in coaches that have real and genuine philosophies. Uh, Louis van Gaal you know, bring, brings the Dutch method with him, followed by Jose Mourinho, who has a very pronounced style of play, 4-2-3-1 defending. You bring in uh, Ralph Ranić who is in some ways one of the most, you know, kind of known for ideas and his very particular way of playing, Eric Ten Hag now. And all four of those coaches tried to implement their ideas. But in the end, the players that are there from various coaches, from various philosophies, don't execute it. And they end up playing a very indi- an individualistic style of play. They can't settle on a cohesive idea. And when one thing goes wrong, they all revert back to their instincts. Whatever they learned as a 12-year-old when they were developing in football, they all become a shell of themselves. Whereas Brighton have very clear ideas that even when they're under pressure, they know what they're doing. When they win the ball in transition, they know what they're doing. When they play forward, they know what they're doing. Now, the, the one thing that they always seem to not do is score. Uh, they always seem to play great stuff, but they never actually finish the chances. Today, Pascal Gross gets his brace, and they end up winning the game. But they have a clear idea that has been implemented through player recruitment and coaching for three years now, and you can tell. And Man United never have the patience to see out a full change in ideology. Patience or the results are bad enough that it might be justified. But now... I really am looking at watching Manchester United, and I just don't think about who the coach is anymore. It's not about the coach. It's about the club. What does the club want to be? They haven't decided what they want to be as a football-playing club because they don't really have a philosophy from the top down. And so how is a coach going to come in and change that single-handedly? He's just one person. He's just a man. And so... Like the idea that Eric Ten Hag is going to come in and with a month of preseason completely alter the DNA of this club, it's impossible. And so I, I don't know what the long term fix is there, other than they just decide they're completely on an Eric Ten Hag. And if they finish in 17th this year, he's going to come back and going to be given the money to go and continue to fix this team. But it's not continuing to change coach, it's on settling what your vision and philosophy is. And Man United do not have one from the top down. I was disappointed by the central midfield, especially for United, uh, McTominay and Fred, just not much there. Bruno Fernandez, not much there today. And I thought it was interesting to see Christian Eriksen start as basically a false nine. Um, I thought once he moved back into the central midfield where he should be 
and Cristiano Ronaldo came on, the Man United looked better. They were obviously pressing for a goal at that point. But there's, I, I do wonder, because the Glazers were there at the game, a result like this at home in the window that's still ongoing, what sort of things do you think it might hasten potentially in the coming days? Well, I, I do think they have the Ronaldo situation to deal with. They will try and get him to a Champions League club, I would imagine. But I, I don't know if they can achieve that just because there does not appear to be interest from other places. You know that George Mendes is going to turn every stone to try and find one, but there hasn't been one yet. I do think that's incredibly uncomfortable for Ten Hag to try and deal with. He's, every time he does a press conference or an interview, he's asked about Ronaldo. He came on today, made a reasonable impact, but ultimately didn't result in the goal. And I think that that's certainly a big one. But yeah, I mean, a center forward, I, I think Ten Hag liked Anthony Martial in preseason from everything I've heard and read, but he's hurt. And so they're probably going to need another one. And they need a central midfielder who can dictate the game. They've been going for Frankie de Jong. De Jong is now being asked to take a 50% pay cut at Barcelona. Maybe that will push him to move to Manchester United. But you're right. Fred and McTominay is your midfield. Not good enough. And again, doesn't adhere to Ten Hag's style of play. They can't execute what he wants them to execute. And then they all become individuals. And the thing is that it starts to claim others because Lissandro Martinez played at left center back and he gets, you know, picked out because Danny Welbeck physically bullied him a couple times. And that might happen because he's a smaller center back. But he's not supposed to be in the position where he's got to figure that out himself. He's supposed to be able to play a passing game with his teammates and he can't because they haven't been able to implement their philosophy in a month. I do think Frankie Dion coming in would be a major boost. I think Ronaldo moving out would be a major boost in getting some sort of a center forward who's better than Marco Arnautovic, which is the latest name you're seeing in reports. It's kind of stunning that that would be seen as uh, the solution or even an option, <laughs> but we will see on that one. A um, couple more things to talk about here uh, in a busy weekend. I'm actually going to skip over uh, Everton nil, Chelsea won. A pretty terrible game overall. I felt like it would be that way when you saw the lineups, and and that's exactly what happened. But Chelsea finds a way to get three points, and and things look dire at Everton. Just not great at all there. Uh, in Germany, Frankfurt won, Bayern six. Is there much to say except like you thought this would be uh, a tighter game with the Europa League champion at home opening game of the season and Bayern drops five on them in the first half. Yeah, I mean, you, you open up your your FOTMOB app and it's 4-0 after 30 minutes and <laughs> it just sort of feels like, well, there goes the Bundesliga. <laughs> it was We we hardly knew ye, Bundesliga. Uh, I mean, look, Dortmund won in the opening day against Leverkusen. So, I mean, they're, they're always going to have a chance to compete, but it just feels like Bayern Munich are a class above the rest of that league and like we talked about before the show, it's just not the best advertisement for that league. It just isn't. That Bayern, we know, is probably going to win it again and win it next year and the year after. And until one of these clubs mounts a big challenge, I, I don't even know. Are they asking real questions of how they're going to solve this problem? Because, I mean, you can say the 50 plus one rule is part of it. But if you break the 50 plus one rule, then I imagine Bayern are going to get a really rich owner and they're going to get even richer. So I don't think that solves the problem. I don't even know how they solve this problem. But yeah, I mean, there's certainly great play to watch in the Bundesliga. The race for the Champions League is fascinating. And it's it's a fun league to watch. But man, Bayern is so much better than every other team in that league. 
You know, it's the only big European league where there has actually been some semi-serious discussion about introducing playoffs at the end of the regular season to determine the champion. And it's obvious why that's being discussed is because uh, Bayern wins every year and maybe they would have less of a chance. It would be a little more competitive if you had an end of the season playoffs. And I know people in Europe just tend to hate that idea and think it's very American, but I've actually seen some quotes from people at German clubs not totally dismiss the idea. And obviously, uh, American television would love something like that. At least it would make the Bundesliga relevant in the, the final months of the season. So I'm curious to see if that continues to gain any momentum, especially if Bayern just completely runs away with the league this season. I do want to talk a little bit about MLS. Um, Oh, by the way, Lionel Messi, first overhead goal of his career. Uh, PSG wins 5-0 at Claremont Foot, and maybe the league on season is over. <laughs> yeah, cer- certainly uh, certainly, no doubt about that. I talked to Thomas Rongen before we did Inter-Miami together, and he did the game for BN Sports, and he was saying that there is just something about how Messi and Neymar look right now. We have to remember, Messi and Neymar played in back-to-back Copa Americas because there's a Copa America every year. I'm surprised there wasn't one this year. Um, and so they come off back-to-back international tournaments, and they also recognize that this is a World Cup year. And so he said that the sharpness that he's seen Neymar and Messi play with is unlike anything we've seen. They're playing in a new system, a new system under Christophe Galtier, the new PSG manager. And they look much sharper than he's seen them in a PSG shirt. So maybe there is a chance that this team is different. Ultimately, I think they have systemic issues to solve there at the club. But they've gotten off to a very good start, albeit against this, you know, not exactly tough opposition. So I guess as, as the league campaign goes on, as they come up against the bigger teams in the Champions League, we'll get a better sense of where PSG are at. Moving on to MLS, full slate of games, almost all of them on Saturday because I think they wanted to allow players to travel to the All-Star game on Sunday. But standing out to me here, Toronto, new and improved Toronto wins 4-3 at Nashville. Insigne scores his first goal of his MLS career. Bernardeschi gets a penalty and... I'll tell you what, Toronto is not in the playoffs as of right now, but if they get in, what's to keep them from making a deep run? They're staying within touching distance, and that's and that's the biggest thing. Uh, results have generally gone their way. There's a huge stockpile of teams in the middle of the Eastern Conference right now, basically from five all the way down into 12th or, or 13th in the Eastern Conference. It's an incredibly tight race at the moment in MLS, and so Toronto... All they got to do is stay close. They're four points off the playoffs with 10 games left to go. They have to jump a bunch of teams, but they'll have a bunch of six-pointers coming up. They they play uh, Portland next weekend. Then they have New England, Miami, Charlotte, Atlanta still to play, Orlando still to play, Miami a second time. They will play these teams that they're competing for that final playoff spot with. They have a chance. And I really thought that after they smashed Charlotte, they, that they were going to take off, but they had something of a setback losing the Canadian Championship final to Vancouver. Um, I, I thought that you know getting a trophy all of a sudden, this team is guaranteed to play Champions League football next year uh, would be kind of incredible after the signings that they made. They didn't do that. And yesterday, you get Bernadeschi on the score sheet with a penalty. You get Insigne scoring a wonder goal. And all of a sudden, and, and that's a way at Nashville. It's a place that, at the very least, is tough to get goals. It's not terribly tough for opponents at the moment because Nashville have not been great since opening their new stadium. Uh, but 
Toronto are, are going to climb up the table and they have every opportunity to make a run towards the playoffs. And as you said, it would be terrifying if they did. And it would certainly would probably be the most box office game wherever that they end up playing would be the most box office game of that opening playoff weekend. Another game that stood out to me, LAFC winning 4-1 at a good Salt Lake team. And we may have found Gareth Bale's role because when he comes on in the 65th minute with Gareth Bale's uh, speed and way he can impact a game against teams that may be a little heavy-legged, you saw what happened. He just completely destroyed Justin Glad and in, in the Salt Lake defense before scoring. And uh, and LAFC has so much going for it. You broadcast this game for Univision, also had a hilarious moment uh, with Giorgio Chiellini, uh, where I think you were sort of speechless for a second and just said, oh my, what happened? Explain. <laughs> yeah. So the ball gets played forward. It's lofted over the top of Chiellini. And he just leaps into the air and bats it down with both hands. And it was absolutely preposterous. It was the, the second thing that happened in the game. The first goal from LAFC was scored by Chicho Arango. It's kind of like a little back heel flick. And it's sort of one of those moments where when you're calling the game, you have to make sure that you kind of capture it appropriately. And I, I and it's, Something that catches you so off guard. The incredibly experienced nine-time Scudetto winner, one of the most distinguished defenders of our generation, forgetting what sport he's playing or deliberately not, uh, was absolutely astounding. And you just sort of wonder, what what the hell? Like, what what, what just happened? And uh, Chiellini swatted, swatted it down with both hands. I made the argument, I'll see if you agree with me, Grant, that... It's not a red card because it's denial of a goal-scoring opportunity. It might not have been. It's a red card on principle. Just because in this sport, you're not allowed to do that. You shouldn't be allowed to do that. That is completely antithetical to the rules of the game. You should be chucked out immediately. And I don't have any basis in the rule book for it. Other than there should just be a clause in the rule book that's, you can't do that. And underneath you know it, it should be, bat the ball down with both hands. You know what's so funny is Chiellini and Luis Suarez somehow continue to find ways to be connected to each other because, right, when Suarez was thinking about signing with LAFC, we were thinking back, oh, wow, he's going to train and be teammates with the guy who he bit at the World Cup. <laughs> and this play, the two-handed volleyball spike, reminded me of Suarez uh, batting the ball off the line intentionally against Ghana in the 2010 World Cup. Uh, one of the great moments or worst moments, depending on your perspective in World Cup history. But it's it's kind of funny just how these two seem to kind of have this link uh, that continues. Um, so yeah, very weird moment, but LAFC keeps winning. Chicho Arango, by the way, just keeps scoring goals. And uh, this is a team that has a chance to threaten to set the all-time points record uh, in the last 10 games of the season. So keep an eye on that. Um, and then one last game I wanted to discuss is Atlanta to Seattle one Gutman with the late, late goal to win it for Atlanta in a game where, to be honest, I thought if any team was going to score a winner, it was going to be Seattle. Agreed. And I do think it's an incredibly huge win for an Atlanta side that have been bleeding recently. Uh, I know that they got you know a win at home against Real Salt Lake, but since June the 19th, they've only won one game, uh, or at least prior to yesterday. So they've dealt with so many injuries. Their team doesn't exactly fit perfectly. They have a lot of things that they're just trying to piece together at the moment. They just needed a win. 
and they got it. And like you said, it might not have been pretty, but they needed that result, particularly if we, we're talking about Atlanta being two points off the playoffs right now with a game in hand. Had they not won, they would have been level with Toronto for second bottom of the Eastern Conference. That's how bad at times Atlanta have been this season. I think at times Gonzalo Pineda, you just look at him on the touchline, he's feeling the pressure. He's made some decisions where you're going, hmm, like I, I wonder what what he's in search of with that team at times. And it's his first job in management. It's a big job. I know it's kind of weird to describe an MLS job as like, oh boy, like big shoes to fill in Atlanta. But that's what it is. It's a really big job. There's 45,000 people in the stadium. That community cares. That ownership pumps a ton of money into the team. And with that comes great expectations. Expectations that they haven't met for three or four years. And so it's time for Atlanta to, to start getting turned around. And well, they probably just needed a win to go off their backside. Uh, that's kind of what it felt like. And it's a huge euphoric moment for the fans that leave on the day. And maybe Atlanta can now kick on and finally be the team that we were promised for the final 10-11 games of the year. I think it's also big for Pineda to win against Seattle in particular, not just because Seattle is the CONCACAF champion, but because Pineda spent so much time there under Brian Schmetzer. I think that for him, there's going to be a lot of satisfaction in getting three points from this game against Seattle. And Seattle, by the way, is not a guarantee to make the playoffs. And so that's going to be another storyline to watch because I think at their best, Seattle is the best team in the league. And if the best team in the league on paper doesn't make it to the playoffs, you can list any number of reasons why that might be the case, but that would be just a huge uh, disappointment uh, for a team that expects better and seems to make the playoffs every year. Their streak is kind of incredible. Chris, thank you. Very long weekend, but fun. Thanks, Grant. Now, here's my interview with Heather O'Reilly. Our guest now is an old friend and World Cup and Olympic champion. Heather O'Reilly just came out of retirement and joined Irish champion Shelbourne FC, which will be competing in the UEFA Champions League this season. Heyo, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Grant. Yep, nice to see you again, and uh, nice to work with you in a different context once <laughs> exactly. again. Exactly. I mean, this is a really cool story, and I think surprised some folks, but we want to know more about it. So a simple question to start, why did you want to do this? <laughs> well, uh, it's a pretty simple and pure story. Um, I, you know, I got to fulfill a lot of my soccer dreams during my career, obviously winning a World Cup, winning a bunch of Olympic medals. I played at my dream university at UNC and and won a couple championships there. Um, and then, you know, when I sort of got into my mid-30s, I uh, decided to ply my trade over in Europe since that was something that I never really had an opportunity to do. I always felt like when I was with the U.S. national team and the way that it was sort of structured before, like I never had the guts, I guess, to go to Europe because I never wanted to miss any training camps with the U.S. women's national team. And I also just felt like I needed to be in the U.S. to be sort of seen, evaluated and selected. So uh, for me, going to Arsenal was something at, after I had retired from the U.S. women's national team that um, I wanted to go do. And I had a wonderful experience for 18 months. Um, when I came onto the team, we ha had gotten third place the year bef before. And at that point, there was only two spots for Champions League for the US, uh, for the English League, rather. And now that it has expanded to three. But at that point, there was only two. So we missed out. So when I went to Arsenal, I knew that I wasn't going to be playing Champions League football, but I said, 
okay, I've done a lot of things. It's not a huge deal. Never played Champions League. Maybe by the end of my time there, I can get him back to Champions League football. That would be a great goal. In the end, we wound up getting third again. Um, and it was uh, it was a good experience over there. But to be honest, like the tail end of my time at Arsenal was very difficult for me. It was like, if I had to say the darkest and worst patch of my life, um, I would probably say that was it. Um, I think I was internalizing a lot in terms of like what I sort of saw was the end of my career. And you hear about kind of like the grieving process of an athlete. And I think that this anxiety and stress that maybe this was the it, this was it for me, um, was stressing me a lot. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't, I didn't end well, put it that way, um, with my stint at Arsenal. So I came back to the U S I played for another year and half for North Carolina, but I always sort of like had this, this, I don't know, this, um, unsettled feeling of my time over in Europe. And also we didn't qualify for the champions league that year either. We got third. So I felt like there was like some unfinished business and listen, I'm a competitor. I'm passionate. I get these things in my head and I need to like do them. Right. So, uh, then I hung up my boots, what I thought was hanging up my boots in North Carolina and, I had two kids and coach at UNC and do some TV work, but there was always like this, like bit of annoying, unfinished business. Like I said, I never played champions league. I thought that it was, uh, the dream was dead, but I, I, I rose it up and the dream is still alive. And, uh, and, and yeah, I sort of made it happen. That's really cool. I, I, how did this particular club and you come together? So I guess it, it all starts a couple of months ago when I took part in Soccer Aid. Actually, Carly was asked to play in it. And I think the Soccer Aid folks, uh, I don't know if they needed more women or what, but they asked Carly, you know, do you have any other former teammates that would that would be good for Soccer Aid? And she immediately thought of me because I play like I play pickup quite a bit um, and play with my team at UNC. So I played Soccer Aid, which was wonderful. And, you know, to like lace them up with like, I was on the right wing. Cafu was behind me and Patrice Evero was on the team and Shevchenko and Usain Bolt up top. So we had a blast and Arsene Wenger was my manager. And, you know, Carly and I like definitely held our own, like with the guys. Um, Carly was still quite good at soccer for anybody that's wondering. And, uh, but after I was chatting with Arsene just about our time over at Arsenal, because his final season was when I was over there as well. Uh, and we had spoken a few times at the training ground in like the line for salad bar, basically, uh, in the canteen after training. But it was nice to reconnect with him. And he said, Heather, you are still very good. Why did you stop? You should continue to play football. And I said, thanks, Arson. I don't know. I, I did it. I did it all. Um, I really kind of left everything I have for the game. And I have these two little kids now. And um, coaching, doing all this stuff. He goes, well, you should still play. And I said, well, I've never played Champions League. That did always bother me. He goes, you should do it. And so, I don't know. Like, I puffed my chest out. And if Arsene Wenger says that I still got it, I think I still got it. So that trip kind of came and went. And I was starting to sort of have this thought in my head. And then fast forward a few weeks later. And uh, actually, with Carly, Alexi Lawless, myself, and a bunch of others are part of a group now called uh, The Next 90, which was a FIFA project of former players. It's essentially a year-long year course for, 
for former players um, transitioning to whatever you're doing next. It's just a, it equips you with some, you know, business classes and, and um, yeah, things like that. Just all kinds of things. If you want to start your own business, if you want to be a, a director somewhere of a club um, and uh, yeah, so we've had a blast, but it's all virtual except for this one in-person meeting. And so we all went to Zurich and we played a friendly match I was on Alexi's team. I think we lost. I missed a penno, which was disappointing. Anyways, so uh, that got us kind of talking again, like at a dinner table that I never played Champions League that I always wanted to. And people basically said like there, they're like, Heather, if you want to play Champions League, you can play Champions League. Like there's like 70, whatever. There's like 70 clubs that are going to be in Champions League, um, at least trying to qualify. Like I'm sure we could find some place for you. And so actually what happened is we pulled up the UEFA website and I started to do some research into what could be like some really interesting projects for me. And like, and it has to be the right fit, right? I'm 37. I haven't played in two, in two and a half years. Um, and uh, it's sort of like, what would be a good fit? Like what would, what would suit me and what would suit them and be sort of like a win-win for both sides. Uh, I did consider FC Zurich for there for a while. I was going to work with Arson and do sort of like an internship for a number of months. Um, but work permit stuff, Swiss law was a little bit too complicated. It was going to take too long. By that point, Champions League would be over. Anyways, so I reached out actually to Shelbourne and they wrote back right away and were like, uh, yes, this is awesome. We know all about you. Noel King used to coach the women's national team for Ireland. And way back, he tried to um, like look into my Irish, I guess, ancestry. Um, but my great 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 grandparents had come over to the U.S., so that wasn't even a possibility even back in the day. Um, but anyways, so we faced up against each other for many years. Noel King is the head coach here now, and uh, and yeah, one thing led to another. I persuaded my husband to to come over and make a trip of it. And uh, we're, the, the team is heading to Slovenia now in a few days for our first Champions League game on August 18th. So to so all that are listening, follow your dreams. You're not too old. It's not too late. Uh, take it from me. Thank you for sharing all of that. That's such an awesome story. It almost makes me wish there was some sort of like video series being filmed <laughs> right now about this experience. Um, but so Arsene Wenger, good impression, by the way. Um, <laughs> I didn't know you had that in you. <laughs> yeah, well, I did that for somebody else the other day. They're like, I don't know who Swedish Arsene Wenger is, but um, <laughs> that's not exactly his accent. I said, I'm trying my best. <laughs> and so, girl from Jersey, living in Ireland, there's a lot of there's a lot of different accents fl- flying flying around. So how how does champions league work with this team and, and are, are there like qualifying games or, or how how is this set up yep so there's been um some iterations of women's champions league like structure and setup so essentially some nations in europe um obviously their champion goes but then they maybe have two spots or three spots like i was referring to england having um but ireland just has the one spot so there's sort of like a, a champion side and then there's a, a league side, which includes some of the clubs that maybe didn't finish first, but they're like considered one of the more prominent leagues in Europe. 
Um, I think like in Spain, they have maybe two spots in France, uh, England, uh, Denmark, places like that have, have multiple entrants. So there's sort of these two paths uh, you play against each other right now. It's sort of like pods of four. So we'll go over to Slovenia uh, play the champion of Slovenia, but also playing there will be the champions of Armenia playing the champions of Iceland. So after we play Slovenia, which is considered a semi the semifinal, we'll hopefully play the winner of those two. And Iceland, um, you know, has a good chance to be that team. So if we win those semifinals and finals, then we'll continue on and do the same thing once again. And at that point, it will be you know, some more difficult teams in the mix. But uh, it would be a few more rounds until we could fa face the likes of a Arsenal or a Barcelona. And and what a dream that would be. So my goal, um, obviously, was just to suit up for Champions League. But now, because I'm a competitor and I try to be a winner, um, if I could help the team get to the group stages, that would be, uh, I think, a huge success and a huge step forward for for the league here and the team here. The league here is very much like a feeder program, I would say, to even the league in um, Scotland and in England. This is totally um, amateur, not even allowed to receive money if they wanted to. Um, it's fully, fully non-professional, put it that way. Um, our training sessions are at night. A lot of people either work or are students. And yeah, we train three days a week at night and play a match on the weekend. So okay. still a lot of growth needed here, but, uh, but the level's good. And, and they're about two thirds of the way through the season right now. It's set up the same as uh, NWSL. So not a winter league like, like England would be. So uh, yeah, we have a bunch of cup games and a bunch of league games. So I'm playing in those as well in order to sort of get to know my teammates. So we have the best chance, uh, that we can have going over to Slovenia, which and I've never been to. I heard it's a lovely country. Have you been? I have not been to Slovenia. I've, I know mountains, mountains. Yeah. Like yeah. when the U S played the U S men played Slovenia in the 2010 world cup, the Slovenian tied two two, but U S was down two nil in that game. And they had some good players, Slovenia, uh, former Yugoslav Republic. It's amazing how many like former Yugoslav republics, have qualified for major tournaments. Like it makes you wonder how good just one Yugoslavia would be. Yeah. <laughs> um, but they, ha I remember the, the shirts that Slovenia wore, um, we called them the Charlie Brown shirts because they actually had the mountains in like a diagonal uh, on, on them. So that's, I just told you literally everything I know about the country yeah. of Slovenia. So I'm sure yeah, you'll well, learn much more. Had, yeah, we had there on the 16th. <laughs> So I'll hopefully have some photos and a little bit more to report back on. I don't know much about it either, and I'm excited for this adventure. Will we be able to see it if we wanted to watch the, these games you're playing in? Hmm. Shoot. I wish I knew the answer for that for this interview. We'll have to do a uh, editor's note and, and add to it. Um, I'm sure there'll be a streaming of it. You know, it's 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 2022. There's got to be a there's got to be an online streaming somewhere. Maybe maybe Ad Football will pick it up somehow through. The Slovenian stream. Um, I hope so. And I, you know, if I if I get it, I will make sure I blast it out. I'm already sending all my friends like Shelbourne FC t-shirts. Uh, the the gear is actually quite cool. It's like old school Umbro stuff. Nice. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm digging it so far. 
And so are you still going to be able to coach and, and do television with this? Yep. So um, this, you know, unless we make this miraculous Champions League run, which I don't put it past us and myself, but um, if we do not, the, the season ends um, November 1st. So Anson Dorrance, who's my boss at UNC, has been very gracious. He knows he knows how my brain works and uh, it's sort of guided me th through my life so far that, um, yeah, if I get if I get an idea, I need to see it through. So I've been talking about this Champions League thing for years now, and uh, he knows that I have an opportunity to go to go do it. Actually, he said, Heather, I hope you go. You have a blast. Play well. I hope you lose immediately and come home as soon as possible. That sounds very Anson. I think you, he didn't was an Anson. <laughs> you didn't do yeah. an Anson voice yeah. impression there. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck, Kev. I hope you lose. And come home early, but good luck. That was more what it was like. Uh, I said, thanks for the support, Anson. Walked out the door. Um, but I'm, I'm the second assistant with UNC. I mean, it's, you know, I'm watching as much as I can watch. They just had their beep test and their early scrimmages for the season um and so i can watch some of those and kind of get, give some feedback so i think that the team was excited for me they saw me running some sprints while they were running sprints doing getting ready for their beep test i was running sprints and they're like what are you running for um even though it's not super unique to see me getting a hard workout in but um so i told them they were they were they were excited i think they're like oh gosh you're a little crazy but also, like when I said I always wanted to play Champions League, I never did it. And it's not it's, it's essentially now or never. You know, I don't want to like write off me in my like 40s, but I mean, I am 37. So I think it's safe to say that um, it is now or never for me to fulfill this, fulfill this dream. And how has it felt so far, your, your playing interactions with your new teammates? <laughs> it's felt fine. It's felt fine. I, you know, it's like. It's like an old comfy glove putting putting it back on. I mean, um, like I said, I I played soccer aid. I play like in Chapel Hill. There's a Monday, Wednesday, Friday pickup um, game. We call it noon ball, even though we play at 11 a.m. For some reason, we still call it noon ball. It's essentially a lunchtime five aside league. League. There are only two teams, but um, yeah. So I mean, I have been touching the ball a little bit. Um, I you know. Clearly, five aside is not the same thing as playing like a 90 minute 11 aside match. Um, so I'm still kind of gaining my fitness back. I wanted to make sure that when I came over here, like I didn't try to be a hero and do too much too soon uh, and like pull a hammy or something because that would be a total bust. Um, so I've just made sure that like I'm taking care of my body and like just taking it slow to sort of gear up for that game. That being said, I did jump in the first match. Uh, I was home, um, got off the red eye on Friday morning. Then we traveled like three hours the next day up to a place called Sligo and uh, they tied it up two two. So a bunch of us went in the game, um, even though it's probably not the smartest thing for me to do, considering everything I just said about taking care of my body. Um, and then Sligo scored like right after we went in, it was devastating. Uh, and then they just, they were treating it like the world cup final. I mean, they were just the, the, to, to be fair, they scored great goals and they defended well, and we just could not get a goal there at the end. And then they all rushed the field, I think, cause they were like second to last and we're top of the league. And then plus with the news of me coming, um, it was really kind of, um, David taking down the Goliath. So, uh, that wasn't an awesome 
entrance for me into uh, my my debut, uh, my repeated debut for <laughs> for um, for the league here. But what can you do? Uh, we'll bounce back, and we actually have a cup game tomorrow, and then uh, another league game next week, and then we head to Slovenia. Yeah, we're talking on Friday, August fifth, coming out Monday the 8th. And what has the response been to your decision here, whether it's from your former teammates on the national team or people like that, or in Ireland, what has the response been too? Oh, um, I guess I'll do the Ireland part first. Like the team thought it was hilarious. Like they kind of like essentially laughed, I guess, because yeah, I mean, not to like toot my own horn, but like this club has never had a World Cup champion um, come over here. Um, actually, Damien Duff is the men's coach, and you might remember that name. He played for Chelsea in like 2000, like or, uh, mid 2000, yeah. I think, for Chelsea, Newcastle for a few years. Um, and he made a joke he, when he heard that I might be coming over. He's like, well, if it doesn't work for the women's team, we'll take you on the men's team. <laughs> And so the, the club was fired up. I mean, just in terms of like the PR side of things and just it was it made a splash, to be honest, as like it rose some eyebrows. It was interesting, I think. And a whole lot of people know about Shelbourne FC now that maybe didn't before, which is the whole point. Um, so, yeah, it, it was big. It was like, yeah, the, it got good news pickup. I was actually supposed to be on one of the late night shows today. And I think it's got bumped next week. Um, but uh, yeah, so doing all that kind of like fun stuff. Um, and then back home. Yeah, I think that like my national team teammates, a couple of them wrote to me like Tobin and Rapino wrote to me from the bus of uh, over in Seattle, just like kind of like, we love you. You're nuts. Like get after it. I don't think people are like super surprised because I am pretty like intense and always going to be in shape and um i love the game so it's not like i'm like the most surprising one to come out of retirement um but i think yeah i think that people think that it's like pretty random but awesome and um are just think it's fun that yeah i'm following a dream and and making it happen a couple more questions with heather o'reilly really appreciate you taking the time um We've just seen the Euros end in England. We've seen England win that tournament in a very exciting way. And in my opinion, the story I wrote afterward was basically saying this was England's 1999, which I know it's not 100% the same, but there's, there's some similarities there. I mean, wh what were you thinking having played in England when you were watching this last weekend? Oh, I was thrilled for them. Um, so I went over to Arsenal in 2017. So, you know, it's a number of years ago now. And I think that like my first impressions of going over there was like, this is a sleeping giant. Like this is this country, like the infrastructure, the support of football is, is all right there. Really all that needs to happen is well, a bit of an influx of money, but also an influx of care for women's football um, and respect for the game. And, and there was sometimes I think that that frustrated me a lot being over there because, you know, I've spent so much of my life in the U.S. like trying to make soccer relevant um, and, 
yeah, like the women's national team obviously like carried a, a big load for a long time. And I'm really proud of that. But when I over, went over to England, it was very much like a gender thing because I'm like, oh, here we go. Like football is everywhere on every pub. Everybody knows, you know, all the teams and it's like so ingrained in the culture. So the only thing that's missing is just like the respect of women doing it. And so it was almost hurtful sometimes how little coverage and how like little respect we had. Like, for instance, I mean, Arsenal is, you know, one of the leaders in, 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 you know, their women's side, but still like, say we were trying to use the gym at the same time as the under 17 boys or under 18 boys. It was like, not even a question, like who would get priority of the gym? It was the boys. And same thing with like using some of the facilities. It was always kind of like, I don't know, you just felt like you were like receiving a crumb and like kind of grateful for it. Um, And so I do, I am proud that I think I chipped away and like at least like to the players, just let them know that like, we deserve this. Like we are the first team. We're one of the best teams in England. You're a national team player. Like just sort of continuing to sort of push the envelope and, and um, yeah, if I, you know, I'm not not saying I was any savior in any way, but I think that like I did bring a little bit of dialogue to um, to the club and to women's football over there. And even with the FA, I would joke with the FA like, hey, you need to get these girls up on like billboards, like like make them stars. Everybody loves following the stars. And and it was a little bit they didn't want the league to grow too top heavy. They wanted to like rise everybody in the league. And I'm like, I'm sorry to break it to you. That's going to take like a hundred years. Like you don't have time for that. Like just let the front lead and, and, and carry everybody with you. And that, that's what we've seen with, with Emma Hayes at Chelsea um, and, and some things that are going on at Man City and even Arsenal. Um, but I think that it was really almost like a self-belief thing that was missing in England. And so I think, you know, you fast forward five years and and they have this like huge moment of, sporting history uh yeah like you said grant it's really an an uncanny comparison to a lot that happened in 99 just um yeah just one the the quality was so good like the the goals that were scored in the tournament were incredible um and you have some personalities coming out people starting to like know the players it seems and i wasn't in the dressing room but it seems like serena vegman uh, really changed the mentality of the team, like to one of like fun and joy, but also like they use the word ruthlessness in a lot of interviews. I think that she kind of brought like a little bit of a, I don't know, a killer instinct. And I always thought that the like underdog card that England tried to pull for a long time, um, I think historically, but also their women's team, it was like holding them back. It was kind of like they were almost fearful to like take this like security blanket off. And finally, Whatever happened over there, they did this tournament. Then they just played exceptionally well. Looked like they had a lot of fun and they got it done at home. I mean, just an incredible achievement. And I, I have a lot of friends on the team, like Leah Williamson's the captain. She was like 20 years old when I was over there, um, but she was so mature. Like I would ask her for advice. She was like a mentor to me, even though I had like 13 years on her. Um, and, and Beth Mead is my good friend as well. So I, I was thrilled for them. They have a lot of Tar Heels on the team, a lot of UNC fingerprints all over that championship with Serena Vengman had played at UNC, you know, a while ago under Anston and then Alessia Russo, Lata Wubimoy, and of course, Lucy Bronze uh, also played for a season at UNC. So we're very proud of that. If we had any sort of, um, I don't know, imprint of competitive nature, 
um, that helped them along the way, uh, we'll take it. And it was amazing timing the next day after uh, England wins this, they announced that they're going to have a friendly at Wembley against the U.S. women's national team um, in October. And it sold out basically in 24 hours, which is just really cool to see because that's that's a giant stadium. I was reminded of that being there the other day. You're talking about almost 90,000 people. Uh, and we're starting to see this with some more frequency, right? With like Barcelona getting more than 90,000 twice during their Champions League run this year. Even Morocco drawing really well during the uh, hosting the African Championship. Colombia uh, hosting the, the Copa America uh, and also qualifying for the World Cup. And it really does seem like there's a wave right now of attendance figures that we haven't seen before. Uh, in women's soccer, in, in, in terms of just sort of the matchup between England and the U.S., I think we have a potential for a great rivalry here. What are your thoughts? And, and, and even from a, just an on-field perspective, you know, how would you compare these two teams right now and where they are a year out from the World Cup? Yeah, no, I, th- I think that they're very level. They're very even. I think... Um... Yeah, all the sort of components that we had, a bit of an edge in terms of like fitness, mentality, uh, never say die attitude, all those sort of intangible things, I think seemingly from their run in the Euros, ha- um, they've taken a jump. Um, and I think Serena Vigman's leadership there has been massive. Um, they have a lot more time together right now at this at this point of the season, you know, when you're in a major tournament like that, you're together for like five, six weeks. And so just playing those matches, having that camaraderie. Um, I know that everybody will go home back, you know, back to their clubs now for, for a number of weeks before getting back together for that friendly. But I do think that they are essentially played in a little bit more than the U S even though the U S just had their qualifying uh, run as well. Um, so to be honest, I give a little bit of edge right now to England, just in terms of like the form of the squad, uh, and the way that they were scoring goals. I think that they scored goals from all different ways, which was interesting. You know, they had, um, yeah, some really killer, um, you know, breakaway finishing, getting balls in behind, which you, you know, you don't see too much with England before, um, you know, scoring from corner kicks, scoring from, um, yeah, some just cheeky plays from Alessia Russo. So their variety and their like depth, I thought was quite good. Um, I still don't think that anybody in the Euros is going to bring the same, like just wave after wave of speed that the U S has, especially like right now with Sophia Smith and, and Rodman and, you know, Alex, like they, we just have a lot of speed and direct play and transitional play that I think could could hit them on the counter in a way that wasn't seen in the Euros. But the teams right now, I think, are very level in the way that they see themselves. Um, I, I think that if you asked the U.S. team, like, are you the best team in the world? Every single player would say, like, with their chest out, like, yes, we're the best team in the world. If you ask England, are you the best team in the world? Some of them might say like, yeah, with a smile. Some of them might say like, we're getting there. Um, And so I think that that's like, that's just the difference in the demeanor right now um, between England and the U S but yeah, what a game. I mean, I love that they're like kind of striking while the iron's hot as they say, and, and, and not just playing like a fluff opponent that they're going to like knock home eight goals against, but playing the U S at Wembley, what an awesome opportunity for both, for both teams. 
um, especially in the year leading up to the World Cup. Heather O'Reilly will be playing in the UEFA Champions League for Shelbourne FC. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Grant. Thanks for having me. Keep up the great work. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Heather O'Reilly as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. Bye.